welcome to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, with me, Raymond Nakamura. And me, Carolyn Nakagawa. Well, Carolyn, I think we have a very harmonious theme today. What on earth would that be, Raymond? We're going to talk about harmonicas. Fantastic. I love the harmonica. Do you play a harmonica? No, but it's one of the instruments that I want to learn. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I play the trumpet. And I don't know, I, I want to learn how to play the piano. And I also want to, I just like the idea of being able to play the harmonica mm-hmm. as well, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Because you can get those racks so that you can be playing other things at the same yeah. time. Well, not trumpet. <laughs> oh, a trumpet would be hard, yeah. Yeah. In any case, harmonica is interesting because I think it has a sense of a, an earlier time associated with it, even though yeah. it carries on to modern times. Mm-hmm. And a sense of community, how it was being used in the Nikkei community. It's right. quite interesting how it transitions over time. Right, because of the harmonica band. Mm-hmm. But we'll start with the sort of early origins of the instrument. It seems that it descended from a Chinese instrument known as the sheng, mm-hmm. which had bamboo reeds, and then sort of migrated over to Europe somehow. And particularly, they were being manufactured in Germany in the 19th century, and the modern European harmonica has metal reeds inside mm-hmm. of the shape. Of yeah, the and it certainly has a metallic... I mean, when you think of a harmonica, you think of the metal aspect of it. So it's interesting how the bamboo would have worked. Right. But I guess the idea is that the reeds... I didn't even think of it having reeds at all. Oh, inside, right. right. Inside, because yeah, it's just yeah. like this little magic box. Yeah, 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 the magic box. But it's apparently what happened. And there's no batteries. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't understand that. Yeah. Anyway, so apparently what happens is each hole has two reeds. Uh-huh. So if you blow in, it vibrates one reed. And if you breathe in, mm-hmm. like inhale, like if you exhale, it vibrates one reed. And if you inhale, it vibrates a different one. So one hole is two notes. Right. It would have been interesting if Darth Vader had a, a <laughs> harmonica inserted in there yeah. so that instead of just the heavy breathing, it would be a harmonica sound. And that right, would be, right. It would be sort or, of less intimidating. Then. Or if you look up Japanese harmonica on the internet, which I was doing recently, uh-huh. um, you will find that there's been a recent internet trend of people in Japan vacuuming their harmonica. Oh, yeah, I did see that. <laughs> <laughs> which... It doesn't sound as bad as you think it would. Or it just it's sounds just, strange. It just yeah. sounds like a harmonica so being all played the all the being notes at once. Or all, all the all inhale once. reads at once. And I guess a vacuum cleaner has a bigger mouth than a normal person yes, does. So, it can so do they can all do the, the whole thing at once. Yeah, exactly. Can't do that. But this might relate to the two major types of the harmonica. There's the chromatic that has a whole bunch of different notes in between. Right. And the diatonic where it's for a given key. And then everything that you can play is in key. So it's right. all, all part of one scale. Yeah. So one scale, um, seven, eight notes mm-hmm. um, in an octave. So the classic one that you usually think of is the diatonic harmonica. Mm-hmm. And you can get like whole sets of them. I remember when I was in Japan, there was one person in band with us who had a case and it had the like 12 harmonicas or whatever, like every key. For each key. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. And so that means that you can't really play a wrong note within the scale. Right. Is everything sounds all right because yeah. of it. But there's also the chromatic harmonica, which has a button. Mm. which means that you can play all the notes. One of the techniques I understand is with the diatonic is how you blow it extra hard and then that causes the notes to change a little bit. Oh, like maybe you're hitting the other reed. Yeah, yeah, maybe that causes it. And also the bending, they call it, of mm. how that yeah. wow kind yeah, of Yeah, lots sounds. of 
special techniques, particularly yeah. the harmonicas. As a trumpet player, I'm just trying to imagine this, and it's kind of uh, it's really complicated. I'm just now I'm really intimidated. <laughs> but it seems like people basically taught themselves. Yeah. Because uh, I spoke to my dad about this. Mm -hmm. He's him being a, a Nisei mm -hmm. man. And he said that he just had one as a kid. Right. And basically taught himself. Right. Well, it was popular in the Depression era, right? One of the Lemon Creek Harmonica Band members, George Tsushima, said that his mother taught him to play, but, you know, he played the harmonica because they didn't have the money to buy anything more expensive. So harmonicas were relatively cheap. And that's actually how they got really popular in the United States around the time that they were first being made because, I guess, 19th century United States was cowboy country mm. and they needed something cheap and portable. Right, yeah, and the you portability, you can just stick it in your pocket. Yeah. and you can say the same thing about Japanese Canadians, too, in the early part of the 20th century, you know, working in different, like, mining lumber camps and then later, of course, with the internment. Mm -hmm. Well, the earliest pictures that I was able to find in the archive of people with harmonicas was in about the mid-20s. Right. And it seems to be tied in with the Nisei, Mm -hmm. Like you don't think of Issei so much playing that no. maybe they're too busy. I don't know exactly what yeah. that means. But or maybe the Nisei really liked the cowboy aesthetic. Maybe, maybe yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe that was it. So there's a picture of them in Mission and another one over at Ladysmith mm -hmm. on the island. Yeah. And so as you say, the portability of it. Right. And there was Frank Moritsugu who had commented on how between 50 and 75% by his and his friend's estimate of Nisei men would be playing harmonica. It was right. so prevalent. That's that's a lot. That's yeah. really high. And he also mentioned that like women also maybe played it, but he doesn't really know. Yeah. Details. My parents both had never heard of anybody, any females who right. played harmonica. Maybe they didn't so, before. That's right. Secret. It might have been in secret. Maybe secret. it was unladylike. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like what, I don't know. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That could be. I actually looked in our database too, and I found this story of, we have one harmonica in the museum's collection. Mm -hmm. And it belonged to Roy Yano. And the sort of history of it is that he bought it when he was a young man and taught himself to play it. It's actually a Japanese harmonica. And he played it when he was at Griffin Lake to help stave off loneliness because during the internment, he was separated from his fiancée because mm -hmm. her family went to work in the sugar beet fields. Mm -hmm. And later he got permission to join her. But while he was separated from her, he would play his harmonica. So I feel like that's kind of a classic Nisei harmonica. Yeah, story. you can imagine the cowboy song, that, yeah. that plaintiff kind of sound yeah. there happening. Miss my lady. <laughs> also, his experience extends over this whole time period that we're looking at. Yeah, definitely. Sort of summarizes that. Yeah, but there was also harmonica bands, which aren't a thing anymore, really, right. that I know of. But they were really popular at the time period. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? I was kind of surprised by this idea of a harmonica band. Do you think of harmonica players as being kind of like lonely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like playing the blues yeah. by themselves. And then coordinating like that. But I have seen harmonicas of different sizes, so I... Mm -hmm. They're that, different keys. That makes, yeah. Yeah, there's bass harmonicas. Although, I guess in a band, you would sort of be wanting them all playing the same key for a uh, given song. Yeah, but you can play in the same key on different, different. sides yeah. and, you know, even on different instruments. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of adapting it. But the pre-war band that I was able to find a little bit of information about was the Gaku Yukai mm -hmm. harmonica band, which was led by Roy Kumano. Mm -hmm. And he was known as our own Larry Adler. Apparently, and I guess Larry Adler was a really famous American harmonica. Oh, okay. Player. Yeah. 
<laughs> You're like, who's Larry Adler? <laughs> Larry Adler was a famous American harmonica player, and Roy Kumano was the Japanese-Canadian equivalent. Mm. And he was leader, I guess, of the Gaku Yukai harmonica band. And Gaku Yukai was an association of graduates of the Vancouver Japanese Language School. And they would get together and do a lot of different performance-type things, like they would put on plays and things, presumably, I guess, in Japanese for the community. So Roy Kumano also was in a bunch of plays with the Gaku Yukai, mm -hmm. as well as he was in a comedy duo with Sally Nakamura. Is that a relation of yours, Raymond? No, no, he has more talent than I do. But <laughs> I think he was also mentioned when we talked about Heiko Saita. Sally Nakamura? Yeah, yeah he was on he, some of the performances he's a, there. And he there's that been a well-known figure. Too. Yeah, and there's that picture of the two of them dressed as Spanish caballeros. They were quite the clowns, it seems. My mother, who was doing Odori on Powell Street, recalled being in concerts with Roy Kumano and participating. So it was a real community kind of thing mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. Yeah. And the Japanese school, which still exists on Alexander, mm -hmm. has the big presentation hall. So it seems like they had a lot of these shows. Right, yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about the idea of community. You know, nowadays we're so dependent on other people making music entertainment you know right. like it's all it's on youtube on tv created. yeah and i remember a comment by uh, kirk vonnegut reflecting on how in times past you'd have your own little community and some people within that would be good singers or good right. artists or something like mm -hmm. that and now we've all mostly become consumers of mm -hmm. these certain people who do that whereas in those times people were participating in different ways Right. So Roy Kumano was one of the big guys for mm -hmm. performing entertainment in the community, and he was really well known for his harmonica playing. He also seems to have been performing as part of a group from the Powell Street United Church, and it seems like harmonica groups are associated with the United Church in general, from what I could find. There's a note in the New Canadian from 1939 where they mentioned that he played at the anniversary banquet of the St. Giles United Church as sort of a representative from the Powell Street Church. And everyone was really thrilled with his performance. And his principal selection was his own arrangement of Brahms' Hungarian Dance Number no. 6, the rendition of which required five harmonicas. So I guess that's five different key changes. And that's that's interesting, too, one. the fact that it's classical music like that on yeah. harmonicas. There's sort of a... Well, you can play anything on harmonicas. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I hadn't really thought of it as a classical, you know, so that's an interesting thing as far as an instrument and the kind of music mm -hmm. and the approach that he was taking. Yeah, and it also shows, like, what you can do with a harmonica if you're really skilled. Mm -hmm. And Kumano was also part of a harmonica band at Mewa Gakuen, which was another Japanese-language school in East Vancouver along Triumph Street. Oh. And that school was run by the Aoki family. So two other members of that band were Ted and Harry Aoki. And we'll talk more about Harry Aoki later because he was another great harmonica player of uh -huh. the Japanese-Canadian Nisei. Was it Aoki's parents who were involved in running Japanese schools? Yes. So Harry and Ted Aoki's father was originally the Japanese language school teacher in Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And his wife, Mrs. Aoki, also taught the younger grades, I think. And then eventually, they stayed there for quite a while, but they eventually relocated to Vancouver and set up Mewa Gakuen on Triumph Street. So if you listen to our Cumberland podcast, then you can add that in there. We didn't really yeah. talk about them being in the Japanese yeah. schools. Yeah, it all connects, you know, it's like a 
series right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were all in the same harmonica band as well. So Kumano was all over the place. Mm-hmm. There was one example, a picture that I saw at the Empress Theater. Oh, really? And the Empress Theater was quite a thing. There was a number of theaters. It was at Tastings and Gore, so okay. right near okay. the Japantown. So but, right near where the fire hall is now. Yeah, but there was another theater nearby, so it was described as being in the heart of Vancouver's original theater district. Right. So it's interesting to think of the cultural activities that are going on there because the Empress Theater was also described as the biggest stage west of Chicago at that time. Wow. So it's a significant place. Yeah. And he was performing. He had the different members of his band in there, so they were filling mm-hmm. the stage. The Empress Theater apparently was torn down in 1940, so it didn't last too long after that performance, but it was a significant place to be. It's quite impressive. I don't know about how he picked it up, but one of his brothers... Harry Kumano mm-hmm. was a taxi driver for my grandfather's taxi business, oh, Yamataxi. Really? And so I knew him when I was growing up in Toronto. Uh-huh. And he was an opera singer and was involved oh. in a choir in Toronto and things family. like that. So, yeah, I guess I don't know the extent of it, but at least two data yeah. points there of music. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting. That I feel like there's a lot of recurring themes. Like we have the recurring theme in the podcast overall of Cumberland, mm-hmm. first with Aiko Saita, then with Cumberland in general, and now Harry Oki's popping up in this harmonica episode. So Mm -hmm. we have lots of talking about the Nisei men, lots of Roy's and lots of Harry's. (laughs) And uh, also musical families, which makes me think of Harry Aoki, who was a well-known musician all his life, both for playing the harmonica and also for playing the bass. And he actually grew up playing piano and violin. Mm -hmm. He was taught by his mother, who was very musical. So that was really a big part of their family life, too. And the reason he ended up playing the harmonica as one of his primary instruments was because when internment happened... He couldn't take his violin with him because he didn't have a proper case for it. It was Mm. like this falling apart, like cardboard thing. Mm. So he just stuck a harmonica in his pocket and went, which I'm sure many others did as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was how he kept music in his life. Right. That's such a clear illustration of the experience, of the kind of choices that were having to be made. And shows you why it was a harmonica rather than any other instrument, really. Mm -hmm. But also, it wasn't just that individual story. Like we said, there's harmonica bands, and the most famous one is the Lemon Creek Harmonica Band. And I think the story of how that came about is really interesting as well. So I understand that there was uh, the New Canadian Newspaper... And that was originally in Vancouver, and then it was being used by the RCMP as sort of an official voice for distributing information. Right. So Uh, at the beginning of government measures against Japanese Canadians, or not the very beginning, so registration cards were happening for a while before Japanese Canadians were forced to leave the area. And then Pearl Harbor happened, Canada declared war on Japan. And one of the first things that happened was all of the community Japanese language newspapers were shut down. So mm-hmm. there were, I think there were two or three, mm-hmm. and they were told that they couldn't publish anymore because it was suspected that they would be spreading, you know, nationalist propaganda right. for Japan or things like that. So that was when the New Canadian, which was an English language newspaper run by the Nisei, really took off and became really important for the whole community because it was their only community newspaper. I think it became bilingual. Yes, so originally it was in English, but Mm -hmm. at that point they decided they needed to become bilingual because otherwise their parents' generation, the Issei, would not be able to read any of the news. Mm -hmm. So the reason I was mentioning that was Kunisuke Ikeno, who was told to go back to Vancouver to get typesetting fonts. Right, so at this point the new Canadian is relocated from Powell Street to Caslow Internment Camp. At the Langham Hotel, I think that was where it was set up. Okay, I haven't been up there, have you? 
Yeah, they have a museum in there set up. Oh, great. So in any case, that's where they were established in Caslo. But he had to go to get typesetting fonts from the new Canadian office. Right. So Ikeno was sent back to Vancouver to get specifically, I think, the Japanese typesetting, like the characters for Japanese language. Which would be a lot. Yes, because there's like some 2,000 characters that you can use. And actually, there's more. Now, that makes me wonder if they were using Japanese at the New Canadian before they left then. It might have taken them some time to become bilingual Yeah. after the other papers were shut down. So maybe that was wise that they weren't able to before they left Vancouver, but then decided to do so when uh-huh. they were in the interior. And so anyway, in, in case it sounds... got a special dispensation to be able to return right. to specifically for this reason. And so the weird thing is that while he was trying to get typesetting fonts, mm-hmm. he found harmonicas. In the same box. In the same box. As a Japanese type. <laughs> this, so it sounded like we were going on a random diversion. <laughs> and I was wondering about that, whether they were Japanese or English, because I don't know if you've seen the metallic font things. They are mm-hmm. kind of similar in size to harmonicas. Oh, so maybe it's and so I'm just wondering whether metal metal things right. of a certain size all being put in a box that makes sense. Yeah. Possibly that's how they got in there. It just right. seemed otherwise really random and weird. Yeah, well, it was definitely serendipitous in any case. So Kunisuke Ukeno saw these and thought, well, maybe my son, who is a teenager, Junji, would like these. So he brought them back. And And Junji had been in one of Roy Kumano's harmonica bands before the war. Right, so this wasn't a totally new thing. And there was, you know, a bunch of harmonicas. So with those, Ikeno recruited Roy Kumano in and they started the Lemon Creek Harmonica Band. And so apparently the uh, first performance was at the school opening in In March of 1943. Yes, but they practiced, and like I said, at the United Church in Lemon Creek. Oh, yeah. So there's this recurring thing, and I think it's that that group of people who were the... Oh, I see, I see. ...were part of the United Church. That was how they all got together. And United and Harmonica, uh, the words are sort of similar. (laughs) In terms of being sort of about cooperation. Uh uh Uh-huh, being all together. Yeah, so they performed in March 1943. That's when, is that when the opening of the school? Right. Right. And then they had a second performance in May Day. And then after that, they yeah. disbanded, it looks like, because Junji Keno, who was sort of the leader, moved to Caslo mm-hmm. to actually join the new Canadian newspaper. So there's, you know, that continual connection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well to that other Nisei gathering point, which was their newspaper. So in that band, I just wanted to mention a couple of the names. It was listed. There's the picture of them. Well, they're all in sort of suits. Yeah. And then there's these stands. So it's very fancy that it's set up. And then behind them, there's like a shoji screen. So it's this interesting combination of looking like a big band with those Mm -hmm. stands. Yeah. The suits and then the Japanese background. And so there were 16 Nisei. I guess they were all men. Yes. But there was one guy named Tarzan Endo. There was another one called Fudge Fujino. And so a few of them had these kind of funny names. Interesting nicknames. Yeah. I feel like there's more than one Nisei nickname, Fudge. It's one of those common ones for some reason. Maybe it sounds like Fujino. Probably. Yeah, it's just like... And maybe they like chocolate. (laughs) Who doesn't? And there was also Frank Usami was noted was the lead player because he played all of the Japanese songs with a special skill. Mm-hmm. And their first song that they learned together was a Japanese song called Uramachi Jinsei. Mm. Uramachi is like a back street or a slum, so it's like life in a slum. I guess it's a very, very Japanese-sounding song. Well, it seems appropriate for being in an internment camp. Right, like and another of their trademarks was You Are My Sunshine. 
That's interesting. My dad used to, I know that he sang that song at somebody's wedding in our family. Oh. So it must have been a popular song. Yeah, though. I think they were really influenced just by the pop new music at the time. So that's interesting in itself, though, that there's the Western style song and the Japanese song. It shows how they were really were this bridge of both cultures. They were blending, for sure. And the Lemon Creek Band, so they only played two performances, but it sounds like it was really something that left a lasting memory for the people who were part of it and who maybe heard them as well. Because most of those band members ended up resettling in Ontario after the war, mm -hmm. either in Toronto or in Hamilton. And in 1980, they played a reunion concert. And I think they played a few other reunion concerts after that as well. Mm -hmm. The nostalgia associated with it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Harry Aoki, going back to him, he also started a harmonica band where he was, which was a logging camp in Blind Bay. And they learned just one song called By the Light of the Silvery Moon. And it was very, very well received, but they didn't have any time to learn, learn any more songs, unfortunately. And there's also other stories that they weren't the only ones doing this, that there was a man named Victor Karonaga in Tashmi who was really mm. well-known for his harmonica playing at concerts they would hold in the camp there. And I think it's just really like these were, you know, young men. Mm -hmm. So teenagers are in their 20s, so they didn't have families of their own yet. But they had been torn out of their lives, and they just they didn't have anything to do in the right. Yeah, often. yeah, so that's a big thing. Yeah, it was something for them to you know fill up their time. You, uh -huh. know, you hear about in Hastings Park, the men were going crazy because they couldn't do anything. Yeah. You know, they could work and they wanted to work. Yeah, but they yeah. were just being imprisoned, so a lot of them would just gamble and right. smoke. Yeah, so harmonica playing is very wholesome in comparison. By comparison, yeah, yeah, that's. So that's I wonder if that's kept them from smoking. Is if you have a harmonica <laughs> stuck in your mouth. <laughs> It's like a replacement therapy or Maybe. Something. So speaking of Harry, though, he ended up going to Alberta after that time period. He was injured, apparently, in the mm -hmm. sawmill. And his family was working on sugar beet farms, right? Yeah, he went to rejoin his family, I think, because he got injured, partly. Mm -hmm. And then he was able to study by correspondence. He was studying music yeah. by correspondence. Yeah, because there's no music for harmonica. Although if you're skilled enough, you can play anything on it. Mm -hmm, right. So he was studying theory and composition and orchestration. Right. But apparently there was a radio talent contest in Lethbridge. Mm -hmm. And he played intermezzo on harmonica. I didn't see whose that was, but he came in second. Yeah. In case. And you know who heard him on the radio was Joy Kogawa as a kid in Coldale. And that's interesting that she still recalled that. It must yeah. have been a very powerful it's thing. very intense memory for her because she just remembers being so proud that it was a Japanese Canadian mm -hmm. who was playing this song so well and placing second in the contest. So um, that she actually said that Stephen Nakane, the older brother mm -hmm. in her book Obasan, right. is based off of Harry. Yeah, in part, yeah. That's right. That's interesting how important that was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a way for him to bring his life back together. And I think that's true of a lot of young people around that age is that they kind of got diverted from conventional schooling. So they went into the arts. Mm. And Harry was one of the first people in Vancouver. He went to Vancouver a few years after, I think in the 60s. And he was one of the first people to join the Professional Musicians Union as a harmonica player. Mm -hmm. And he ended up getting some film gigs where they would just get him to make up some whatever melody and he would just play songs that he learned in Japanese language school that were from Japan. And everyone thought he was a genius that he was just making these things up on the spot. That's interesting that you pull in something they don't know. And... Yeah, and they all just were blown away and thought that he was making these brilliant melodies uh -huh, on the spot. He was uh -huh. just like, these are the melodies that I sang in kindergarten, but he didn't tell them that. <laughs> so he carried on, though, for some time. Yeah. 
And his trademark song, he also played a number of really complex classical pieces like Roy Kumano, but he was also a real jazz player, so his trademark song was actually Stardust, which was a really popular song in the 1940s, so you can see that carrying through. And it's also a very complex song hmm. for a jazz tune, so I think part of it was also that he wanted to be able to showcase how well he could play the harmonica. Hmm. Seems that nowadays harmonica mm -hmm. is not so common that people are playing it, although obviously it's possible to yeah. pick it up and play. Certainly. But I think it's not too much to say that it played a significant role in helping people get through, you know, like yeah. their, their whole peace of mind. That, that they could literally carry it with them right. when so much else had to be left behind. So whether it was just a pastime when you're separated from people you love or it became a life passion like for Harry Aoki. I think it was a really important marker of that generation. So I wanted to leave us with this quote from Frank Morisugu, another Nisei, who really talked about the importance of music in general. And harmonicas, mm. say, would be the main way that Japanese Canadians could make music in the camps. But in just music in general, he said, In those bad times when we were in the road camp, ghost town or elsewhere in the early resettlement years, music kept many of us company. Pop songs on the radio and record raise up from the abysmal depths of loneliness and the wrenching feeling of being cut off from the rest of the world. As many Nisei squirmed under wartime restrictions, feeling betrayed, frustrated, and powerless, music warmed many of us and comforted us. So, of course, he's also referring to even just being able to listen to albums and recordings. Mm. But I think an important part of that as well is making music with harmonica. So I think it'd be fair to say that a harmonica sounds Japanese-Canadian to me. Absolutely. Until next time. All right.